Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm Jordan, your host for today, and I'm really excited to introduce this special two-part podcast on the book Critical Theory Between Klein and Lacan by the authors Amy Allen and Mari Ruti. After we recorded this first episode, which you're about to listen to, Amy and Mari wrote to me to say how much they enjoyed the conversation and how they both wished we could keep going. I'd myself felt that there were so many more topics I wanted to explore with them that you listeners would be interested in. So, in an unusual twist for the channel here, we decided we'd record a second part, which will go live on the site shortly, delving deeper into the many rich themes of the book. I hope you enjoyed this special two-part podcast as much as we enjoyed producing it. And now, on to the show. Mari Ruti is Distinguished professor, professor of Critical Theory and of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Toronto. She's the author of 12 books, most recently the wonderfully titled Penis Envy and Other Bad Feelings, The Emotional Costs of Everyday Life, published in 2018, and Distillations, Theory, Ethics, Affect. So thank you so much for agreeing to join us, Mari and Amy. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you. I mean, um, this has been, reading this book, uh, I just found it so rich and so interesting. And I, just to say a little bit um, for the listeners about it, it uh, takes the form of a kind of dialogue um, in which Mari and Amy, um, who are kind of uh, respective experts in uh, Lacan and Klein respectively, um, look for uh, places where uh, Klein and Lacan converge and diverge and kind of um, explore in a variety of different ways um, how they have mobilized the two thinkers uh, in their own work and um, how how the two might be thought together. Um, so I had, as I was just uh, saying to you before we started the podcast, um, I had kind of furiously highlighted and scribbled notes throughout the entire thing because I had such a fun time reading it and had so many questions. But I'm going to try and avoid doing a kind of rapid fire Q&A and um, give us the space to really uh, have an open conversation about the book. Um, so why don't we just begin um, how we kind of always begin these interviews by just learning a bit about um, how this came about um, and what was the what was the process like of, of writing it for the both of you. Um, so Amy, if you kind of care to start and then maybe Mari can add something afterwards. Sure. Well, um, actually, we talk about this in the preface, but the book started um, with a conversation over dinner after Mari came to Penn State to give a lecture for the Complet Department a couple of years ago. Um, and it was a lecture on Lacan's seminars, Seminar on Anxiety, and because um, anxiety is very important for Klein's work as well. Um, we had this really interesting conversation over dinner after her talk about some of the similarities and differences between Klein and Lacan's work. And, um, and it was just a great conversation. It was just one of those conversations, you know, that you wish would never end really. And so as we were leaving the restaurant, I said in a kind of offhand way, you know, we should write a book together on Klein and Lacan. And I sort of thought, 
And she said, oh, that's a great idea. And, you know, I, I went home and didn't think anything of it necessarily. And then the next day, literally, I had an email from Mari that said, let's start working on our book. <laughs> um, and then she had the idea of... And, and that's supposedly, as you know, in the preface, a kind of typical response of Mari's is to, is to actually go for a kind of writing the next thing as soon as possible, right? Well, I, yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think at least unconsciously, I must have known that she would be someone who would take that suggestion very seriously. But um, then Mari had had the idea about how to um, how to engage in the writing process of the book, which I think I will let her talk about. Yeah. So uh, first, I should say that um, uh, I would have never, ever, ever been. Uh, as enthusiastic about writing this book as I end up being, if it had been uh, Amy specifically who suggested it. Um, I was extremely familiar with her work. Uh, she is one of the thinkers who has had the biggest impact on my own work in recent years. And so um, the fact that she she wanted to work with me was a huge plus. I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. This is exactly what I want to do. This and it, it, felt, it also felt like the the next step, um, kind of the next logical step in my own kind of intellectual trajectory to do something collaborative at that point, because I have never, I've written a lot of books, but I've never done anything collaborative. And so um, I was intrigued by that genre. And um, I was really happy that it was Amy in particular who was offering to work with me. And then um, I don't know why, I just thought that if we if we were going to have an, uh, a dialogue of some kind, that we should try to keep it as spontaneous as possible and actually have a dialogue rather than do this kind of a fake dialogue that would be just written. And so I thought that um, uh, taping the conversations would be a great way to um, sort of retain the spontaneity um, and the liveliness of the of the exchange. Yeah, could could you say something about actually technically how you did it? Because you you describe in the preface it was was it over a series of days that you kind of sat together and had a conversation that you recorded, or how was it all kind of structured? Yeah, so uh, Amy came to visit me <laughs> for a week, and um, the day she arrived, we sat down for maybe a couple of hours and decided on the topics that we wanted to cover, and then uh, for five days in a row. We uh, sat down from approximate, approximately 2 o'clock until 4 o'clock, so about two hours a day, five days, and we end up with um, over 100,000 words that way. <laughs> so it was sort of like we wrote wow, yeah. a whole book in 10 hours, which felt really amazing. I mean, obviously, we revised a lot in the in the uh, writing process, um, but uh, yeah, it feels like we basically wrote a book in, in five days. <laughs> and and is it right that you you kind of assigned homework for each other beforehand mm-hmm. as well? Well, yeah. we had agreed we had agreed on certain texts that we um, wanted to focus on, and I mean from the beginning, as you said already, the idea was um, that Mari has obviously tremendous expertise in Lacan's work, and I would just say, um, you know, I want to echo what the very nice compliment that Mari paid to me. But I was ecstatic about being able to work with her. I have such huge respect for her work on Lacan, and I have learned so much from it. Um, and then I have, I would say, uh, less expertise, but some on Klein. I mean, I wouldn't want to overplay my hand there, but um, 
we, we both agreed that, you know, we wouldn't try to match each other's uh, kind of expertise, that the idea was to, that we were each bringing our body of knowledge to the conversation, but that there were some um, texts where Lacan criticizes Klein's work or some really important texts of Klein's that we wanted to both have read before the conversation started. So we had at least some common touch points as well as our own kind of background knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about Amy, but I know that I spend the mornings uh, of those days when we were taping, like I spent every morning frantically rereading my <laughs> my uh, scribbles in the margins of Lacan's seminars and also uh, my scribbles in the, in the client texts that Amy had suggested. So I tried to go into each session having kind of refresh my memory about the specific topic that we were going to discuss that day. Right. I mean, it's really interesting and helpful to hear this because um, even though this isn't directly related to the content of the book, I mean, it, it seems as if you've kind of pioneered quite an interesting way of putting of writing a book. I mean, uh, it's a really unique uh, process that you devised. Yeah, I mean, there are there are some other people who have done something similar, like um, uh, Lauren Berlant and Lee Edelman wrote that book, uh, Sex on the Unbearable, which is now mm-hmm, yeah. a hugely uh, appreciated book in queer theory. But it didn't quite have the same uh, spontaneous feel um, as our book does. And I think when I suggested the taping process, that was kind of uh, what I had in mind. I wanted a book like that, but I wanted it to be more, more colloquial and more sp- spontaneous. Mm. Okay, and and last question on the kind of uh, structure of the book overall. I'm I'm curious about you. You you chose these six themes. Um, so it's subjectivity, anxiety, affect, love, creativity, and politics. Um, Amy, I think you were just about to say something, so maybe uh, feel free to to kind of say what you were about to. But also maybe you could comment a bit on how these themes came about. Um, well, what I was going to say was that I think we talk about also in the preface that the the process which Mari suggested was um, a bit terrifying because it felt like, um, you know, theorizing without a lot of the familiar, you know, supports, support systems that we have in place when we write it, particularly me. I mean, I, I think I one of the things I learned the most about in doing this project with Mari was um, to just experiment more with different kinds of uh, writing styles. I don't mean like this the stylistic, um, you know, structure of my writing, but the process that I engage in when I write. And um, so it was very freeing also, but probably for that same reason, terrifying (laughs) to kind of, you know, be out, felt like you were kind of far out on a limb, but I think it really did pay off. And in terms of both the spontaneous quality of the exchange, but also just ideas, I think, I know there were some ideas that came to me that when I went back and read them in the transcript, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And I (laughs) didn't, you know, it kind of came out very spontaneously in the conversation in the moment. Um, But um, in terms of the themes, that was something that, as Mari said, we agreed upon when we first, before we started, um, you know, we wanted to have a loose structure of um, something like five or so chapters. We had five days to record. So, you know, one conversation per day was sort of the model. And we knew we would start with subjectivity because we wanted to start with Klein and Lacan's respective theories of subject formation. Cause for, for both of us, that's so important, you know, for their, the implications of their work for critical theory. Um, and some of the other um, topics that came up, you know, had to do with some particular interest that we each brought to the project. As I mentioned, the whole thing, 
started when Mari gave a talk at Penn State on Lacan's seminar on anxiety. And because anxiety is so important in Klein's work as well, it seemed natural there should be a chapter on that and so on. Mm-hmm. Only one of the chapters kind of emerged um, after the fact. That's the chapter that's on um, fusion. Um, and that was because, um, I, I mean, I will take... Uh, credit or blame, I suppose, for it, um, because it was something, it's just a topic that I kept wanting to come back to in the conversations, because it's something that I was really wrestling with in terms of thinking about um, different psychoanalytic models and their implications for critical theory, and um, just trying to get very clear for myself on how Klein departs, I think, from, um, from certain theories about fusion, how she's sometimes misread on this point, and why that's important. And in, in any case, that was a topic that I think I kept steering us back to in some of the other conversations. And it became clear at the end that it was, there was so much material spread across the different conversations that had to do with that topic that we needed to kind of pull out that material and make a separate chapter from it. That, that was actually really, that was kind of the uh, most amusing part of the whole pro- project for me. Uh, because I really couldn't understand uh, for the longest time. I think I, I can understand until the last day uh, why Amy kept coming back to this particular topic. Uh, I think that uh, <laughs> I think that adding I that chapter would be a really great thing. Um, it, uh, I, I learned a, a lot from the conversation we had about fusion, but it was something that I had never really uh, thought about. It was not something that was a concern for me. The other topics I have been obsessing about uh, my entire career, you know, subjectivity, anxiety, love, creativity, affect, politics, those are really um, uh, kind of familiar topics to me uh, or for me, uh, whereas the topic of fusion was just kind of like, wow, like, I was like, wait, why, why does she keep coming back to this? Why, mm-hmm. why, what, what's happening here? And it was only at the end that I realized that in her version of critical theory, this was something that was being hotly debated currently, um, whereas it's not in my, my version of critical theory at all. And so it was, um, it was one of, and this was, um, one of the interesting things about the method that we used, uh, namely that there were these moments where, uh, where I think it's prob- probably mut- mutual, but like in this particular instance, I just couldn't quite understand why this was so important to, um, to Amy. And then at some point it became clear that there was a reason. And then I was like, oh, oh, now I get it. So let's make this actually into a huge deal because obviously this is a huge deal for your field, yeah. which I didn't realize. Yeah, I mean, actually, w- while we're on it, why, why don't we just say a little bit about... Um about this topic and its importance. And I think it's quite interesting, Mari, that you say um, her version of critical theory and my version. And, and I think that phrase comes out a couple times in the book. So maybe you could start actually by saying, well, what you mean by that? What, what do you consider your version of critical theory respectively to be? And then, um, Amy, if you could say a bit about what uh, why fusion is such an important topic and, and what it's kind of a what it's about. And I know you speak a lot about Axel Honneth and um, the idea of fusion there. So maybe a bit about that whole debate and and where you situate yourself in relation to it. Mm -hmm. So um, the way I define critical theory in my field is um, it's it's a very broad definition. uh, And I think that it's a common definition in 
literary departments rather than philosophy departments. So I work in a literature department. Um, my degree is in comparative literature, although I actually literally know nothing about literature. I do not. I don't. I know nothing about literature. I never. Th- I never teach it. I managed to get a PhD in comparative literature without really knowing anything about literature. All my all my courses were on theory and philosophy and psychoanalysis. Um, So my uh, definition has to do with uh, the kind of broad definition of critical theory that has to, that is, that revolves around the intersection of uh, continental philosophy, psychoanalysis, feminist theory, queer theory, um, ethnic studies, uh, kind of this amorphous mass that has to do with uh, things kinds of approaches that are just basically critical of everything mm-hmm. <laughs> kind way, of when, when people say theory in the states in in the university context is that the kind of critical theory that you're referring to yeah, as exactly. a shorthand when they say that yeah yeah when they say contemporary theory or progressive yeah. theory or uh just theory that's what they usually mean whereas amy's definition is much more specific and i'll let her speak to that um yeah i mean i think it's this is a very complicated question to answer, actually. I mean, I would say I was, I would situate myself more in the tradition of critical social theory. Um, I mean, I was trained in a philosophy department and um, was uh, trained at Northwestern in the 1990s when it was, um, and it still is very strong in um, Frankfurt School, um, critical social theory, but very influenced by Habermas and post-Habermasian developments. Um, and, but I always had broader interests as well. I mean, I, I've had a much longer standing interests in Foucault and in feminist theory. And I think that's always made my approach to Frankfurt School critical theory a bit more eclectic and broad. Um, so when I was in graduate school in the 90s, there were, you know, sort of Habermas had just published the philosophical discourse of modernity a few years before it came out in English in 1987, I think. Um, And so there were just, you know, sort of debates raging between like German Frankfurt school critical theory and French post-structuralism or something. And and I was always um, of the view that there's a whole lot to be um, learned, you know, and by, you know, how do I want to say this, that Frankfurt School critical theory, you know, is greatly enriched by engaging with um, the work of Foucault, with other French thinkers like um, Derrida and Deleuze, with feminist theory, with, you know, other variants and strands of critical theory. Um, And so one of the things I feel like I have been kind of doing my entire career, not necessarily always consciously, is trying to work within um, in some way, the, what I understand to be the methodological aims and um, constraints of the Frankfurt School approach to critical social theory, but to do that in a way that's in conversation with some of these broader strands of critical theory. So al- always with feminist theory um, and with psychoanalysis, with postcolonial theory, with critical philosophy of race, with other critical approaches. Um I think that's important. You know, I I take the sort of definition of critical theory from Nancy Fraser's work when she describes critical theory as the self-clarification of the struggles and wishes of the age. That's a definition she takes from Marx. Um, And, you know, it seems to me that if that's the project of critical social theory, then we need to be engaging with 
the most cutting edge and important thinking about about race, about colonialism and its ongoing impacts, about sexuality, um, about gender, you know, and so on. And so that that's an impetus to kind of read and construe the project much more broadly than just the Frankfurt School. And that's probably uh, one of the main reasons I appreciate Amy's work so much, because uh, um, she's not just doing uh, Frankfurt School critical social theory. She is approaching my kind of theory in various ways, while still kind of having uh, one foot in um, in. Uh, the Frankfurt School very strongly, much more, much more strongly than I do. Right. But nevertheless, there's a lot of um, overlap between our ways of theorizing and particularly um, with our topics yeah. of obsession. Like we obsess about subjectivity and interrelationality and stuff like that. Yeah. And so so it's interesting. So this topic of fusion, although you, you discovered, I suppose you had a lot to say about it, Mari, and it became quite a big part of the book. It uh, could you tell us a bit, Amy, about what? Why was it such an important topic for you? Why is it, and 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 how do you situate yourself in relation to debates around it? Right. Um, well, I will say that I'm not sure that I understood why I was so obsessed with it either. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I was really trying to just figure out um, partly where Klein stands in respect to that the question of fusion. But in any case, um, I mean the. Frankfurt School critical theory, if we just restrict, if I can restrict myself for the moment to that definition of critical theory, um, has a kind of longstanding engagement with psychoanalysis, both historically and theoretically. Um, Like the first generation of Frankfurt School critical theorists like Adorno and Horkheimer and Marcuse were very deeply engaged with psychoanalysis. Um, And that was also true even for the early Habermas um, up until uh, the late 60s when he published his book, Knowledge and Human Interests. Um, And after that point, there's, you know, sort of a break and Habermas um, stopped being engaging with Freud and turned to cognitive um, psychology and developmental psychology and the work of people like Piaget and Kohlberg. Um, And I think, I mean, I could say more about what I think the reasons for that were, but in any case, um, it had a big impact because Habermas's work had such a huge impact on Frankfurt School critical theory that had a big impact on the field, and um, to such an extent that it's very rare for people who work on the Frankfurt School now, not not totally unheard of, but much r- more rare for people to engage seriously with psychoanalysis. And um, the one one of the most important exceptions to that is Axel Honneth, and so that's why his work plays such an important role um, for me. It's an important touchstone in this um, conversation. Um, because if you want to sort of think about what the Frankfurt, the contemporary Frankfurt School has to say about psychoanalysis, Hanet's work is probably the place you have to start. Um, but Hanet reads psychoanalysis primarily through Winnicott. Um, and the idea of fusion plays a really important role in his uptake of psychoanalysis. And again, I think there are kind of systematic reasons for that. It seems to me that there's, I mean, first of all, you know, it has, it must be said that the idea of primary narcissism, which is essentially some sort of story about fusion, or at least um, psychic subjects starting out in a state of complete undifferentiation, um, that it's very important in Freud. Um, And so in this sense, I think Hanet is actually kind of hewing closely 
to a more, you could say a more orthodox Freudian line, but in any case, he, he sort of reads Winnicott as, um, as positing a state of primary fusion that initially in Hunnett's early work, he says lasts for the first four to six months of life. And he later kind of under pressure gives up that claim, um, which does seem pretty, uh, implausible. I think having, having spent time with, uh, a lot of time with infants and young children myself, I think the idea that there's a fusion state between mother and baby for that lasts for four to six months sounds wildly implausible and frankly, kind of ideological, but in any case, um, he later gives that up, but, but holds on to this idea that there are moments of fusion, episodic moments of fusion between the mother and infant. And it's really important for his story because he has to have, I think, something like that account of primary fusion and the breakup then of the primary fusion and, um, and to, in order to get his whole kind of account of recognition off the ground as a theory of, of subjectivity. So the idea is you start in a state of primary fusion which is blissful and which is a kind of paradigm case for recognition for him. Cause it's a completely unmediated uh, being together with another person. Um, and then there's inevitably a breakup of that because, you know, the reality principle must intervene and so on. And the mother can't meet all of the infant's needs. Um, so it's inevitable for there to be some disappointment and pain. Um, and, that is the breakup of the primary fusion relationship. And for Hanet, that's actually where that leads to anxiety, which then um, generates aggression. So it's how he is able to um, give a role for aggression and negativity in his theory without positing something like a death drive or primary aggression. So aggression is the result of the anxiety that comes from the breakup of fusion um, and it also gives him this very strong conception of intersubjectivity. It's a little misleading to call it intersubjectivity because the idea is you don't really have two fully formed subjects yet. You have some sort of fusion thing. But it's like a, it's like what intersubjectivity could be if we could ever reattain that perfect fusion state, which for him is what we then, once it's lost, we are constantly striving to get it back. And that's what becomes the motor for the struggle for recognition in his view. So it plays an incredibly important role. And I guess I was very, if I could just go on for one more minute, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to say, I suppose you're about to do this, but I mean, you, you really highlight how um, in your understanding of Klein, this kind of fusion is not possible. Is that Right. And part of, I mean, but part of what kind of sent me off on that track was reading um, several years ago when Hanet gave the Tanner, his Tanner lectures, Jonathan Lear was one of the respondents and he wrote a beautiful uh, response that, that sort of talks about this, um, the structure of Hanet's view. And he describes it as like a paradise lost view. So we start out in the state of something, you know, either it's, a four to six month long state of fusion that's blissful or episodic experiences of blissful fusion. And then it's broken up, you know, we have to be driven out of paradise. And then we try to, you know, we're on the road to try to get back for the rest of our lives. And, um, and, and Lear just sort of poses the question, which I think is really important and interesting. Like, well, what if it's, what if it's just ambivalence all the way down, basically? Like, what if, you know, what if our starting point is, not the state of a uh, kind of blissful fusion, but is instead deeply ambivalent to the core. And then what would the implications of that assumption be? And I found that really compelling. And I think, 
I don't know if Lear has Klein in mind at all when he says that, but I find that deeply resonant of Klein's view. Um, I think her view is that there is intersubjectivity in some sense from the very beginning, um, but it's also always deeply ambivalent. Um, And to me, starting with that assumption, it gets you to a different place in terms of social theory than if you start with this assumption of a kind of... uh, pure unmediated form of intersubjectivity that then gets broken up and has to be recovered. And Mari, I wonder if we could add, because this is one of the kind of interesting points where um, you both find that in different ways Klein and Lacan agree. So what is the way in which you articulated the Lacanian stance on fusion? Yeah, so um, as I said earlier, um, uh, is this, uh, the topic of a fusion, that whole notion of this, this kind of a, an unmediated relationship between mother and child isn't really hasn't been a concern um, for me um, for a very simple reason, namely that uh, in my understanding of Lacanian theory, this would be completely impossible because for Lacan, Lacan, there's the signifier always comes first. In other words, there's nothing um, in terms of Lacanian theory. There's absolutely nothing that escapes the power of the signifier. So, um, you know, uh, the minute you introduce the signifier, you demolish the idea that there could be some sort of a, um, a primary um, state of plenitude between mother and child. Uh, that's one reason I had never really thought about it much. I mean, Lacan admits that there is a retroactive fantasy of a, such a fusion that the adult subject might have. There is this uh, unconscious attempt, perhaps, to return to this uh, place of uh, of fusion and fusion and and some sort of a paradise, but he always emphasizes that it's uh, um, intrinsically retroactive. Now that said, I I know that there are a lot of accounts of Lacanian theory that circulate in the academy in situations where like non-experts, non-Lacanians are talking about Lacanian theory. So when people are teaching Lacanian theory, say to undergrads or even sometimes to grad students, they do make it sound like there is this uh, a state of plenitude at the beginning. Uh, there is jouissance at the beginning and it's supposed to be wonderful and you know uh, blissful. And then there is the signifier that comes and intervenes into that plenitude and then as a result of as a result of that, you get that subject of lack. You get the split, the split subject. However, if you actually truly know Lacanian theory, you know that that's not what he's saying. He's actually instead saying that the signifier is there from the very beginning, um, pre- uh, so that this type of a notion of uh, fusion is is an impossibility from the get go. And I guess uh, the easiest way to understand this is that. Um, and this is maybe why there's so much confusion about this. Um, the fact that the child does not yet speak, speak, that the infant doesn't yet speak, does not mean that it's not um, surrounded by signifiers, that it's not in many ways determined by signifiers from the get-go. The minute it's born, the signifier is there. Like I, I say in the book, um, trying to be humorous about it, I say something like the, sig- the signifier is waiting in the uh, delivery room. The signifier is in the room before the mother even arrives <laughs> in the room. And so uh, that <laughs> automatically uh, just cancels out the possibility of 
this primary fusion that everyone is talking about um, in the kind of corrupt Lacanian uh, theoretical sense that I really don't like, or what I call the standard narrative that people have kind of learned to tell yeah. in undergrad classes that I think is just uh, really misleading. Um, it's almost as if, the, as you said, the fact that it is um, kind of analyzed by Lacan as a, a major fantasy that people have, as if that's playing itself out in the way that people uh, understand Lacan or kind of conditions the way that they tell the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to um, mm-hmm. understand why it has mm-hmm. become such a such a dominant um, way of thinking about Lacanian theory. Uh, I have never found it anywhere in Lacan, really. (laughs) So I've always um, wondered where people are getting this idea from. And, uh, you know, there may be indications uh, in some sections of Lacan, but it's interesting. I think you're right. It's interesting that people have latched onto that particular uh, idea. Um, And maybe it is because they, they are, uh, there's some appeal to it. There is some appeal to the idea that there is this, uh, paradise that we have all lost that that we're all trying to recover in a way just on that point i would say i think oh, i think this is um a line from ernest jones talking about klein um saying that basically if freud destroyed the idea of the innocence of childhood klein was the one who took that a step further and destroyed the idea of the innocence and the ideal idealization of infancy. So, um, you know, which is, which is again, I think a place where Klein and Lacan come very close to one another because, um, she, she just had no interest in this kind of fantasy of, um, a kind of blissful fusion state. In fact, it's one of the things that, was at the center of her very heated and consequential debate with Anna Freud. The fact that she rejected primary narcissism, that, and um, I mean, obviously there were certain things about technique and so forth, but her rejection of primary narcissism and her acceptance of the death drive were two of the things that really um, Anna Freud thought were kind of unacceptable. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a really great um, kind of quote, but uh, yeah. So speaking of the places where Klein and Lacan agree, um, I want to uh, have some time to talk about what both of you say around the ego and Klein and Lacan, because I think this is one of, to me, this is one of the really provocative areas of the book, because you kind of together come up with this original argument that despite uh, appearances uh, in which uh Lacan and Klein seem to have uh, people tr- traditionally think that they have very different views of the ego. Um, that there's actually, if if understood in the right way, um, there's more compatibility than first meets the eye. So uh, I'll just read a quote from the introduction. Apologies, I can't remember if it were if it was Mari or Amy who said this, um, but it. Uh, you write uh, Klein's distinctive vision of what it means to strengthen the ego which entails enriching it by incorporating a greater degree of unconscious content and increasing its tolerance for ambivalence, ambiguity, and conflict is more compatible with Lacanian theory than it initially appears. So I guess the traditional division is for the Lacanians um, in, in analysis, you don't want to strengthen the ego. That's in fact an impediment to the unconscious. Uh, but the response that you kind of uh, generate, Amy, and, and kind of collaboratively is that perhaps Klein's idea of strengthening the ego um, is not is not necessarily what Lacanians think it is. And so it's not necessarily to do with 
uh, imaginary identifications and narcissism, but uh, incorporating some kind of unconscious content. So I'm sorry if I've now just summarized more than uh, than than necessary, um, so that you guys can't say more about it. But if if you could kind of um, I don't know, discuss a bit about this this idea and 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 um, yeah, what what do you think the role is of the ego in Klein and Lacan, and and how did you kind of reach this idea that they might be more similar than it first seemed? Yes. <laughs> well, you did a very nice job of summarizing it. Um, so, but um, I mean, I would say um, some some of this may be more terminological. I mean, Klein does talk about you know the goal of analysis is strengthening the ego um, and, or something like ego integration um, repeatedly. And I think if one assumes, you know, that what she means by ego is something like what Lacan has in mind when he's criticizing the ego, then this seems like a really deep and intractable problem. But I guess I think um, Klein tends to mean something much broader. I mean, she, she doesn't, she does talk about the superego, of course, but I, I don't think she necessarily employs the id ego, superego terminology that um, rigorously, actually. Um, and that for her ego integration is sort of more just about psychic integration more broadly. And um, it certainly has nothing to do with this idea of, you know, establishing the rational mastery of the ego over the id or something like that. Um, so it's not a kind of vertical top down sort of integration where the goal is, you know, the ego becoming master of its own house. Um, it's a much more expansive conception of integration and it's one that is, um, that is predicated on the idea that, um, that complete integration is never possible. Um, so it's an ongoing open-ended process. Um, and that ambivalence, at least as I read her, ambivalence is something that can never be overcome. And so there's always a kind of, um, split, you know, quality to the, even the integrated ego for her. Um, ambivalence is not something because the death drive can never be, eliminated ambivalence can never be overcome. It can be managed or withstood or tolerated in more or less productive ways. Um, but there's no kind of final reconciliation in the offing. Um, and, um, and I guess, well, I think that's, I can say that's enough for now. There's one other thing I might say, but if if I can remember it. (laughs) Yeah. Mari, maybe could you say a bit? So what, why are Lacanians typically skeptical of, uh, the idea of strengthening the ego, and then how did you come to to kind of think that there might be something different going on in the Kleinian version? Uh, so, well, on a on the most practical level, Lacan is very very critical of the ego because he hates American ego psychologists because he believes that they are trying to bolster up the subject rather than to deconstruct it. I mean, uh, uh, Lacan was very much kind of a French thinker in the sense that he was his his um, goal was to take apart the the arrogant self-identical humanist enlightenment subject um, uh, so that's kind of a baseline um, issue for him um, the worst thing you could do from a Lacanian perspective is to strengthen the, the ego because if you do so you will end up 
and I'm, I'm like paraphrasing him, you, you'll end up with a, an insufferably arrogant and thus violent type of a subject, the kind of subject that thinks that it's, it's prerogative to go out and conquer the world, basically. Um, and um, the reason I ended up thinking that, or I think Amy and I both end up thinking that maybe there was more of a similarity between uh, Lacan and Klein's understanding of the ego um, than people had previously thought is the fact that, uh, you know, as Amy just explained for Klein, it's integration is not really a matter, ego integration is not really a matter of um, sort of bringing the, the subject into the, um, under the umbrella of reason or uh, mastery in any way. It's actually about enriching it in the sense of making it more capable of dealing with ambiguity and conflict and um, and also anxiety. And um, I think that that's actually fundamentally pretty similar to what Lacan has in mind when he's uh, talking about how there is no cure for the subject's constitutive lack, for that lack in being. So what, what Klein is talking about in terms of the impossibility of integration, even though integration is an aim for her, she doesn't seem to believe that integration in the sense of like making you all coherent and kind of monad-like is possible. Um, even though she talks about integration, integration uh, in the usual sense of the word is not actually the goal for her. And once you understand that, you can uh, make the parallel, you can draw the parallel between what she's saying about the lack of um, lack of ever reaching full integration and um, the fact that what you need to learn is to how to deal with ambiguity and conflict and ambivalence. You can take that and make a connection between that and the Lacanian notion that there is absolute, absolutely no way to heal your fundamental lack. There is no cure for your uh, existential malaise, for your um, your lacking being for the fact that you have basically been torn apart in some way. Yeah, that's really, really great, really helpful. I mean, and but one of the things I was, um, when I was writing in the margins reading this discussion is I felt like the two of you reached such an interesting um, kind of theoretical point about saying, well, if we if we understand, if we get beyond maybe the terminological issues and kind of understand what the two thinkers are getting at, there might be more here than in common than meets the eye. But I was wondering about um, what the clinical implications are. I mean, I know both of you write this um, really more, wrote this really more from a theoretical kind of academic perspective. But um, do you think that, uh, you know, that the, that Kleinian approach to psychoanalytic to psychoanalysis and Lacanian approach to psychoanalysis, um, does this issue around the ego manifest differently in in how the two kind of approach the treatment? Um, because my thought was kind of there's so much emphasis in the Lacanian kind of uh, you know technique around trying to destabilize imaginary identifications and particularly this reservation around. Um, the kinds of interpretations that are made um, and uh, an avoidance of kind of making too many interpretations around the transference and all of that. And all of this kind of has to do with the Lacanian take on the ego. So um, yeah. What, what do you think are the, cl- the clinical implications um, mm-hmm. of, of this idea? Can I, can I jump uh, in uh, here? Um, okay. So this is a really, really great question. And um 
Okay, so obviously, uh, like a, 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 obviously, a Kleinian, Kleinian uh, analyst would be more likely to. I'm, I'm just guessing. A Kleinian analyst would be perhaps more likely to uh, place an emphasis on a degree of integration. Um, at the same time, as we have just established, if you understand by integ- uh, by integration the ability to tolerate uh, conflict and ambivalence, uh, uh, which fundamentally comes down to the ability to to um, tolerate the death drive, the impact of the death drive, mm. then in some ways it's not that different from the Lacanian attempt to take apart the ego in the sense that um, the Lacanian idea is to reconcile the analysis to the realities of castration understood in the broad sense of like you're castrated because you are lacking being. Um, so uh, the death drive is once again hovering in the background of that, that understanding, uh, as is the idea that you will never be an, a fully integrated person and that you will have to live with your fundamental um, ambivalence and conflict. So, Again, I, I mean, I think that the approaches would be quite different, and that uh, that Klein might have a Kleinian might have uh, kind of a bigger stake in making sure that the person doesn't actually completely fall apart, that there is some ego strength in the mix. But uh, ultimately, conceptually speaking, they may be getting to a very similar place of basically saying, "Look, there is no fundamental solution to your." Uh, Kind of existential problems. There is no way to make you whole. There is no way way to make you non-conflicted. Uh, there's no way to way to erase your ambivalence. There's no way to get rid of the death drive. So let's try to get you to a point where you can learn to live with that reality instead of you wasting your life basically looking for the kind of cure that is impossible. Um, that was that was a great answer. Um, so. I was going to, and it reminds me of the other point that I wanted to make in a, a few minutes ago in response to your other question, Jordan, uh, which is just to highlight the importance of loss mm-hmm. in Klein's framework. I mean, I think it's not the same as in any respect. And I don't think the point of our conversation in any way is to say Klein and Lacan are saying the same thing or, you know, to kind of try to totally reconcile these two perspectives. But I do think. So anyway, it's not her account of loss is not the same as the Lacanian understanding of the subject as a lack in being and so on. But there's a kind of interesting analog there, the idea that subjectivity is for her founded on a kind of experience of loss um, that can never be fully recovered. I mean, there is, you know, there there is some idea inclined that the aim of analysis is to work through the depressive position. Um, or in some sense to get beyond it. But if you really kind of dig down into what that means, it seems to me at least that what it means is just, um, is that there is never a definitive beyond of the depressive position. There are ways of inhabiting it in, uh, in more productive, more creative, uh, more vital manner. Um, so, um, so I think that's very important and, and, would have profound impacts for clinical work. I can't speak with any authority or expertise on that. I will will say one of the readers of the, one of the early readers of the book um, uh, suggested that it would be really interesting to have a kind of second dialogue um, that focused really on the clinical implications. That was Jameson, Jameson Webster. 
Um, and I think that would be fascinating, but I'm not in a position to do it. But I will say um, that I think there's, you know, Klein, I think in some sense is interested in through the process of analysis in her writings on analytic technique. You know, there's the idea is that the, the aim of analysis is in some sense to strengthen the ego and to help the analyst have a more integrated ego. And that's quite different, obviously, than the aim of Lacanian analysis. But um, there's also a kind of caricature that one might have. And I think in some places, Lacan actually, in, including in his seminar on transference, uh, deploys this kind of caricature of like Kleinian analysis is all about just showering the analyzand with love, you know, to try to like help them build up their ego. And that's not Klein's. If you read her, what she has to say about technique, that's not what, that's not what she says at all. Um, you know, so for her, um, in some sense, um, the analyst is supposed to play the role of the good breast for the analyzand to help them, you know, develop the core of their ego if they may not have developed it sufficiently in early childhood or, or something. But, um, but the way to do that is not by showering the analyzand with love and affection and attention and validation. It's as she says, by giving good nourishing interpretations. Yeah. Um, so, that is interpretations that are in some sense and, you know, help. And, and I think she is also very interested in analyzing the transference so that in some sense help shift the kind of transferential relationship or dynamic, but it's not about, um, yeah, it, one could easily have a kind of caricature view of it that, you know, that Lilcanian analysis is all about, you know, cold, uh, distant, the analyst being cold and distant and, you know, breaking down the ego and the Kleinian analysis is the opposite. And I don't think that's actually how Klein understood her technique. Mm-hmm. And I, I think for, uh, for me, the, really the crux of the matter is that both uh, Klein and Lacan are talking about lack and loss or loss and lack. And the um, analysts or the subject's ability to come to terms with that. Lacan t- tends to talk about lack and Klein t- tends to talk about loss, but they're both talking about a kind of melancholy structure of subjectivity that is very difficult for us to deal with as, as human beings. Um, but for both of them, that seems to be the human condition. And so uh, in terms of the uh, clinical practice, my, my sense is that both aim at uh, enabling the analyzer to come to terms with the fact that they have to live with the fact that they are creatures of lack or loss. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And not, not coincidentally, I think Klein and Lacan are the two, you know, most important figures in the psychoanalytic tradition after Freud who took the death drive really seriously. That's really, yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, I guess just, just to press a little bit further on it before we move on. Um, I guess what I was thinking as well, though, is, uh, there's a kind of if you read, for example, Bruce Fink's work on kind of technique of Lacanian psychoanalysis, he'll often emphasize that the analyst is supposed to take this kind of oracular position where uh, the the status of knowledge um, is, you know, the, the, the analyst is a subject supposed to know, but there's a way in which the analyst is kind of just picking up on maybe um, kind of. Uh, unconscious reverberations from the patient and kind of relaying them back. Whereas it, I kind of got the sense that with the Kleinian kind of outline you were giving that there's a bit more of a kind of uh, a giving an interpretation that sort of makes sense in a way that says, maybe you are defending against this for this reason. And I was wondering uh, what you thought about that. Is there a, a clash between those two positions? Okay. So uh, in Lacan, definitely there's the idea that, that the analyst uh, 
puts him or herself in the position of the subject who's supposed to know. But the whole point is to get the analyst out to understand that the analyst analyst actually doesn't know um, mm. so that the, anal- the analyst ends up doing all the work. Um, it's a, I mean, a lot of people think about it as a pretty cold approach to doing analysis in the sense that there's no reinforcement, no reinforcement coming from the analyst. And the reason for that is that the idea is that ultimately uh, the Lacanian analyst wants the analyst to understand that the big other doesn't exist and the big other doesn't have the authority or the knowledge that we presume that it does. And so insofar as the analyst functions as kind of an avatar for the big other. The whole point of Lacanian analysis is to is to show the patient, show the analysad that the analyst doesn't actually have the answers that they're looking for. Um, as to what the Kleinian analyst is doing, um, I, I think that there is a difference, and I'll, I, I will let Amy speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not sure what to say. I think it may be that Klein herself is is less concerned. She's, she's more classically Freudian in the sense that she's a little less concerned with this question about the authority of the analyst. I mean, she doesn't, you know, one of the kind of places where you can sort of think about this is in the role of counter-transference in Klein's work. Um, and it's, as far as I can tell, it's, it's a, it's a concept that she herself didn't really, um, explore, um, and in the few places where she discusses it, she seems pretty um, dismissive of the idea of analyzing the countertransference. Um, but in later work, you know, later post-Kleinian, Kleinian psychoanalysis, countertransference has become a really important topic and concept and, and very core to the technique, as far as I understand. And so, you know, and that is really bound up with these questions about the authority of the analyst and, um you know, in some sense, trying to to focus on the countertransference is to, in some sense, dethrone the analyst um, from the position of the authority who, you know, can give the answer, right? Um, so I guess I would say, I mean, obviously, this is complicated because Lacan had his own kind of critique of the whole idea of countertransference, and that's complicated too. But, um, but I think... Um, if one wanted to sort of think about this question of the authority of the analyst in Kleinian technique, that would be the place to start. I wonder, do you have an idea, Mari, why Lacan um, has a reputation for make for making so many uh, insulting or perhaps inaccurate remarks about about Klein? What, what was his beef with Klein? Well, okay, so I can I can only hypothesize, and I guess I can also uh, kind of paraphrase Julia Kristeva. Um, uh, Kristeva has a book on Melanie Klein, as you probably know. And uh, <laughs> in that book, at some point, she actually um, more or less accuses uh, Lacan of plagiarizing Klein. In other words, taking a lot of her mm-hmm. ideas and then not crediting Klein for them. And so, uh, and I think this comes up in our conversation in the book a little bit. Um, there are moments in Lacanian theory where I think that she, that he's actually very, very close to Klein's ideas, and of course, Klein precedes Lacan, so uh, it's very conceivable that he was familiar with her ideas and incorporated a lot of those things, a lot of her ideas, um, and perhaps for that very reason, wanted to create this distance between himself and her. Um, I mean, he's critical of pretty much everyone, so it's really hard to say whether he's um, 
particularly critical of, of Klein, but it is intriguing that he is very critical of her, even though uh, there are times when his thinking is very much along the same lines. It's pretty interesting that um, apparently I read this in the Phyllis Grosskurth's biography of Klein, that at one point, and I can't remember exactly when this would have been, but I guess maybe in the thirties, um, Lacan, Lacan and Klein had some correspondence and he offered to translate her book, the psychoanalysis of children into French. And it never happened. Um, but I mean, I think it's, I would kind of infer from that, that he, um, had a kind of familiarity with her work from, from pretty early on and was appreciative enough of it to want to translate it into French. I mean, anybody who's ever engaged in a translation project, particularly of a book length, you have to, I think, well, yeah, you, you, you would want to be somewhat committed to the, um, the worth of the project, right. If you were going to yeah. offer to do something like that, it's I, a tremendous, I mean, it wouldn't work. surprise me too. Um, if, you know, it's, it's the very people who look on, um, kind of, uh, at times insults that are the ones that he thinks are uh, worthy of his respect enough to, to make critical comments towards. It's almost, yeah. Almost and often there's a kind of, yeah, it's almost a government to be critical. Yeah. And I will also, I will also add that, I mean, conceptually there, of course, of course, is a reason, and this may be unfair to Klein, but I think that one reason Lacan is so critical of her in terms of the substance of her ideas is that he hates it when people literalize anything in psychoanalysis and Klein does often tend to literalize things, particularly, um, and we talk about this in the book, uh, there are sections of Klein where it sounds like she's really literalizing the mother's body and the breast and the child's relationship to the breast and all of that stuff. And as I said earlier, for Lacan, that doesn't make any sense because he's so focused on the signifier and how the signifier always intervenes in these relationships and how there's no such thing as a purely biological, you know, mother's body and breast and all of that stuff. So I think partly his his critique is coming from his absolute hatred hatred of biological thinking um and i'm not saying that klein is actually as biologicist or what uh however you say that word as lacan portrays her to be um but um if but you can you can understand that if he assumes that she is if he is reading her in a way that reduces her into a kind of a biological thinker then he would really have a problem with that because he is very much a constructivist um, on a fundamental level. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's what I feared would happen is happening, which is that uh, there's so much more that I wanted to talk about, but of course we're um, beginning to run out of time. So uh, maybe one way we could begin to wrap up that might be kind of interesting is I wonder if um, each of you could say something about what you kind of learned most uh, from the other in, in the process of putting this this book together. So uh, Amy, if you wouldn't mind to start since Mari just spoke. Sure. Um, well, um, it's hard to, to summarize that briefly, but as I said earlier, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount about Lacan from Mari. One of the things that I've always, I mean, I had read a lot of her work before we um, worked on this project together, um, but I think the process of engaging in this actual dialogue and then the editing of it and the exchanges we had back and forth around the editing of it really deepened my understanding of her work. And one of the things I've always appreciated about her interpretation of Lacan is that it's a 
it's in a way very iconoclastic. It's, it's, um, of course, well, it's what I think I referred to at one point in the book as a very reparative reading of Lacan, because it, um, it is very influenced as I understand it by, um, by Lacanian analytic technique. And therefore it avoids a lot of the excesses of the really starkly negativistic, um, you know, more pessimistic, let's say, or anti-relational readings of Lacan that you often find in Mari's version of critical theory, we'll call it. Kind of <laughs> so I've always really, like Edelman, is that, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, I mean, I've actually seen, uh, I've seen Mari present papers before where there are, you know, people in the audience who are much more influenced by this, I think more standard reading academic reading of Lacan and, um, you know, who've reacted very hostily, you know, so I know that this is actually a position that, um, that she takes some heat for, but I have always found it incredibly, um, productive and, and rich. Um, and also I don't pretend to be an expert on Lacan, but I have now read and taught, uh, Lacan more over the last couple of years. And I find her reading to be incredibly compelling also. So, um, so, so I, first I would say I learned just a tremendous amount about Lacan, um, and, uh, how to read, Lacan and how not to read Lacan from Mari. Um, and then the other thing that I already mentioned was just, you know, really learned a lot. It was really fascinating to get a sense for her writing process, which is, I think, very different from my own. I think I tend to be much more regimented. Um, you know, I don't, I'm the kind of person who doesn't like to sit down to write something, an article or a book chapter until I have a pretty good sense of where the whole thing is heading and how it all fits together and what the structure of it is. And, you know, I don't necessarily write an outline ahead of time, but I usually have one in my head. Um, and I'm not saying this doesn't work for me, but I'm just saying, you know, it's, it does mean my writing process can tend to be slow. I mean, it takes a while to figure that stuff out. And, you know, sometimes you can hang yourself up by um, thinking to yourself, well, I don't, I don't, can't start that chapter yet. Cause I'm not really sure, you know, what the structure of it is yet. And I think, the process that we engaged in, which I think is in some ways closer to Mari's own writing process was much more um, creative and spontaneous and, um, you know, involved just, just putting stuff, well, not down on paper in our case, but talking through the dialogue and then transcribing it. So literally, you know, just very spontaneously talking about the concepts and the texts and the ideas that we were thinking about, and then going back later and sort of, editing the structure yeah. into it. Um, and that's for me, it's something I have been experimenting some with in my own writing since we worked on this project together that has been really, uh, fruitful and, um, and yeah, I learned a lot yeah, from Mari just, about just that as well. On that note, I mean, I was thinking as I was reading it that like in my, when, whenever I'm trying to write a paper and I often, I feel like experience something a bit similar to what you described, Amy, of like wanting to have all the ideas kind of sorted out and organized in a clear outline before kind of pen really goes to paper. And then sometimes I kind of let myself just sort of say, okay, well, if I were to summarize what the ideas are to a friend, how, how would I write them down? And, and often I find that the process of doing that frees me up quite a bit and then produces something that I can kind of edit into shape a bit. And it, it felt almost like that's, that's what happened here is it's like so much content came out of the, the fact that, that the both of you were so willing to sort of let the words flow. Yeah, absolutely. And things that, um, 
like I mentioned earlier, things that I didn't know that I knew or thoughts that I didn't know that I had, it you know, like that kind of came out. Process. And it was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very, it was very interesting. And, um, you know, and there was so, yeah, that, that was really fascinating. And it's something, as I said, that's been, that I've been, I've been trying to be a little bit freer in my own writing process as a result. I really appreciate all of that, Amy. Uh, I mean, I've always, I've learned a long time ago that I, I know more than I think I know. So if I just start writing, uh, miraculously things will appear on the page. And so my, yeah, my writing process is just like, I throw it all out. Uh, I, I can draft a book in like three weeks uh, when I'm not talking it to a tape recorder. And then I'll spend a lot of time um, making it uh, better, polishing it and all of that. But the initial push is really fast. Uh, and that's precisely because I, I, I've kind of learned that I somewhere in my head, I don't know where exactly, somewhere there is all this knowledge that I can't conjure up unless I actually start writing. Um, but in terms of what I've learned from Amy, um, I mean, I, I loved some of the stuff that she um, um, talked about in, in the context of bringing in Adorno and Foucault and also uh, really deepening my understanding of the Frankfurt School, um, particularly the, the later work in, in the Frankfurt School tradition. I'm familiar with the early work of Benjamin and Adorno, uh, but not at all uh, with the post-Habermasian debates. And so that was something that was really eye-opening for me. Um, and then I I have to admit that I I, I really... I, I mean, I have I have talked line before, I had read her before, but I really did not have a very good. Now, in retrospect, I can say that I really did not have a very good understanding of her, of her theory. So Amy was able to convince me of a lot of basics about Klein that I would have not been able to come to on my own. Um, I'll just mention three things. Uh, first, the fact that ego integration doesn't mean integration in the usual sense of the word. That is, it's about enriching the ego and being able to cope with um, ambiguity, uh, ambivalence, and and conflict. And then second, the, uh, the fact that Klein is very strongly focused on negativity and loss and, uh, well, the depressive position and also de- the death drive, that she's uh, very much along the lines of Lacan in, in, the, in the sense of, like, focusing on the, on the sadder... Um, uh, frequencies of life, the more difficult frequencies of life. And then third, uh, and I, uh, I wish we had been able to get to this in the conversation, but uh, throughout the conversation, Amy uh, emphasizes that Klein has what she calls, quote unquote, a realistic understanding of, of the human subject. And this, of course, has to do what what I just said. Um, it has to do with points one and two. So Klein, Klein has this realistic understanding of what it means to be a human being, and Amy's claim all all um, all along in the in the conversation was that this realistic understanding of what what it means to be a human being gives us a, a much better foundation for politics, for thinking about politics and social change than uh, we would have if we um, started with this this kind of a more happy, um, more positive understanding of what it means to be human. If we started with the idea that it's all about reaching integration and uh, fulfilling your potential and finding the, finding the cure and all of that. So I, I really appreciated that idea that you know having a realistic understanding of uh, what it means to be a human being actually gives us a stronger foundation for social change 
than we would otherwise mm, have. That's really fabulous. Okay, uh, the final question we have to ask on the program um, is uh, what what directions um, is your thought uh, taking currently? Okay, so we'll start with Amy. <laughs> uh, I as 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 usual, as usual, I have I have at least five projects in my head, and I will not go through all of them. Uh, but um, I will just mention that I want to write a book on Roland Barthes, uh, and I want to write a book on uh, Lacan and um, Marion. Oh my Miller. God, that would be amazing! I'm I'm a, I'm, I'm in a Marion Milner yeah. reading group actually. <laughs> Um, and, and, and oh yeah, she's awesome! Absolutely incredible. <laughs> and I think um, a, a secret kind of uh, a surprising resource for millennials in particular. There's there's so much that she says uh-huh. about you know kind of put in different words what what you know millennials call FOMO, the fear of missing out, and inability to focus, and the ways that she kind of uh, deals with that. Anyway, sorry, I just think that'd be such a great uh, yeah 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 cool. <laughs> um. So that sounds great. Um, as usual, I only have, I have one project I'm working on. I, I sort of am a one at a time kind of person scholar. Um, but, uh, it's a book in many ways, it's a kind of companion or in some sense, we'll pick up on some of the ideas in the, this book that I wrote with Mari, um, on, uh, Frankfurt school, critical theory and psychoanalysis. And, um, the, the basic idea is to argue in a more extended and systematic fashion, of the importance both of psychoanalysis for contemporary post Habermasian critical theory. As I mentioned earlier, it's, there's been a lot less engagement with psychoanalysis uh, by Frankfurt school critical theorists um, in the last couple of decades. Um, So part of it is to argue for the importance of that re-engagement and then to argue for Klein as a uniquely important resource for that project. Okay. That, that sounds great. So, Mari, Amy, um, I have held you for longer than I promised to um, because uh, I just didn't want to stop the conversation. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, uh, and coming to speak with us. It's been so lovely. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you.